general approach to our subject because we are dealing with an entirely different class of basic material. We have been telling the stories of the great mythological systems and the fables and legends of the gods which have arisen at the dawn of human experience. We have dealt essentially with situations that belong in the pattern of prehistory. Now, of course, some mythologies are much older than others. But, in each instance, they emerge with the rise of a culture or of a culture group. Uh, thus, they have to do with a thought such as once upon a time, long before ordinary prosaic things were taking place in the world, certain other events were transpiring. And these other events belong to an old time when the gods walked with men. And these things in our way of thinking were long ago and deeply submerged beneath the surface of a rising materialistic culture. Thus they come to us through the age of fable, and come also as stories sustained by certain relics of art and archaeology. This approach is not suitable for the study of Buddhism, because we are dealing with an entirely different concept of life. And in order to understand the redemption myth or myths of this sect, we have to realize that we are no longer dealing with prehistory, but with an unhistorical state of affairs. In substance, then, we must begin by differentiating two concepts in Buddhism without which much of our struggle or effort will be fruitless. The Buddhist legends cannot be interpreted by listening or even by a general thoughtfulness. They must be interpreted from a concept, from an idea consistent with themselves. And as we would naturally approach them as in terms of comparative mythology, we would be at a disadvantage immediately. In Buddhism, there were two great schools called the large vehicle and the small vehicle. The large vehicle was the Mahayana and the small vehicle was the Hinayana. In the Hinayana system, the end of the Buddhist disciplines was the perfection of the Ahat. And we have the concept of this strange being who includes many of the ideas we associate, associate with saints and with patriarchs and with great sages. The Arhat lived a solitary existence. He renounced the world. He renounced worldliness in all its parts and in all its departments. And he retired to some secluded place, perhaps into the wilderness or into the forest, or perhaps into the house of some religious order. And here he devoted himself the clarification of his own consciousness. <clears throat> we cannot deny that this man was not only good, but profoundly sincere. And because of the intensity of the disciplines to which he subjected himself, he gained a broad reputation for holiness. And gradually around him, there sprang up a cycle of myths and legends 
represented the production or product of a system. In the oldest records that we have, Buddha himself stands in the position of an eye. In this, he is sustained by his own concept. But in, mysteri in a mysterious way, he was neither God nor man. He was a Buddha. And in this peculiar sense of isolation, he rejected not only the limitations of humanity, but the grandeur of the Arhat concept, or the grandeur of the idea of being a divine person, or one peculiarly and inevitably the channel of a divine purpose. Buddha originally did not invest himself with these attributes, but he was a great saint, a great sage, a great philosopher. And in these degrees, he was human, he was mortal, he was a person. But within and beyond this person was an achievement, an attainment, a more or less complete and perfect adjustment with the mystery of ever becoming, which is really the foundation of the whole Buddhist belief. On the opposite polarity to this doctrine, there gradually rose the Mahayana school, or the school of the Bodhisattva doctrine. Now a Bodhisattva was conceived as a being also but entirely different in essential nature with an Arhat. It was not inconceivable that one could appear in the form of the other, but behind the two concepts was an essential difference, and perhaps the easiest way of explaining that difference would be by recourse to a more familiar situation, and that is medieval Christianity. During the medieval period of the rise of the Christian religion, two classes of religious persons uh, gradually were distinguished. One of these classes was called the class of the monks, and the other was the class of the friars. Now the difference between the monk and the friar was almost the same as the difference between the Hinayana and the Mahayana uh, a saint or sage. The monk was very likely to retire into the houses of his order and there to remain. Perhaps his principal industry was the illumining of missiles and the preparation of works of art. He seldom if ever ventured into the world. He remained secluded, bound by obligations, for his principal purpose was to serve the God he worshipped through the renunciation of a material life and the dedication of every power and attribute of his consciousness to the contemplation of the mystery and will of God. The friar, however, had a somewhat different estate, and perhaps of the orders of friars, the one with which we are most familiar is the Franciscan order. Here we have a group of persons dedicated to God but who also recognized in this dedication a very present and real ministry to the immediate needs of their fellow men. The friars went out and worked. Their religion was based upon ministering to the sheep. They were the ones who took the attitude that holy life was expressed most perfectly through the service of those who needed help. Both were dedicated, but there was quite a difference in the psychological foundation of the two dedications. In Buddhism, then, we have the Arhat, who corresponds with the monk, and who represents the perfection of this particular path of attainment. We also have the Bodhisattva, who corresponds to the ministering friar. The Bodhisattva 
however, represents an almost complete, infinite, or perfect expression of ministry. He was not merely out serving those physically and immediately needing. He represented a being totally dedicated uh, to the extension of enlightenment for all men. He had taken an oath or an obligation, which has been called sometimes the great renunciation. As part of his basic worship, he had sworn that he would not seek peace, reality, or the nirvana for himself until the least of creatures could enter this great state with him. He therefore returned to labor, whereas the in the uh, small vehicle, the southern school, he would return no more. He would pass into the supreme state, or the ultimate essence of being, having fulfilled the perfection of himself. Now there has been some division in thinking as to the selfishness, of unselfishness, the ethics, the morality of these paths. I think such discussion can have no essential meaning. There is no doubt in the world that the Ahak of the Southern School made every sacrifice conceivable to his consciousness. His sincerity, his integrity, and his devotion uh, cannot be doubted or questioned. But he had the concept, the strange concept, that it was his duty not to save, not to attempt the redemption of others. For in so doing, he strangely restricted them. He believed that the supreme achievement must be by the natural growth of each creature. Therefore, that the teacher cannot teach. That the experience of growth can only be experienced through suffering and on to the great road that leads to enlightenment. In the Mahayana, however, the possibility of one person serving another, the development of the concept of, of reality as a state of bhakti or love, and that love expressed itself through the supreme compassion of man, that the perfect service was self-forgetfulness in love, and therefore that this path also led, and to the northern school, led most directly to the supreme realization. The individual realized even by forgetting the realization, by submerging it in the immediate need of suffering humankind. Thus the Aha, in his growth, did not develop or is not associated with the same psychic attributes as the Bodhisattva. The Arhat was not assumed or presumed to be capable of the universal consciousness of the suffering of unenlightened things. His advancement was through the gradual shutting out of all except reality. Whereas the Bodhisattva's concept was the extension and sensitizing of his own powers, so that for him, understanding uh, was largely the result of his own infinite capacity to understand everything, the greater and the lesser, the good and the bad. They were all united in one vast understanding, an utter and complete sensitivity, not only to reality, but to the illusion. A sensitivity which at the same time did not incur involvement. Thus in the advanced text of Mahayana, uh, we have long and carefully arranged lists of the powers and attributes of the Bodhisattva.
And these powers and attributes sometimes cause us to pause and wonder whether there has not been a little borrowing or exchanging between certain religious beliefs. We know that Mahayana actually arose as a powerful religion or religious motion or concept prior to the beginning of the Christian era. We also realize, however, that it was influenced to some degree by the motion of Nestorian Christianity into Asia. There can be no doubt that some of the parallels are almost too exact to be explained in any other way. For example, in the Mahayana concept, there cannot be but one Buddha. In other words, all Bodhisattvas do not become Buddhas. They become Buddha. And in this realization, the entire road or path of achievement ends in a vast, almost inconceivable state of identity, an utter and complete unity. Therefore, a Buddha, presuming that, like Wakaba, he took upon himself the appearance of body or became embodied in order that he might accomplish the ministry for which he was intended. The Buddha thus could say, before Abraham was, I am. The Buddha could say that all preceding Buddha beings existed in him and that he existed in them. He could therefore regard himself not only as the firstborn of totality, but also the eternal embodiment of all that might exist in the Nirvanic state. He would therefore also be able to say in departing that he went to prepare a place for those who were his disciples and that when they achieved the Nirvana they would become himself and he would become themselves. That there could be but one end. And in this concept, Buddhism postulates a transcendent ever-becoming as the total end of all existence. Scholars have been working for a long time to determine if possible that part of the Buddhist philosophy which must be present in order to complete uh, the concept of the Mahaparanavana. In other words, where does being go when it passes from the state of being to the state of ever becoming? This question is essentially the core of Buddhistic metaphysics. And there seems to be only one conceivable answer. In fact, this answer is sustained by practically all Buddhist scholars of the classical period. And it is that this nirvana or paranirvana, which is the extinction of the cognitions and the sensations is in no sense annihilation, is in no sense the total extinction of anything. Perhaps Platonism was affected by this concept, for while the Greeks never achieved to the subtlety of the Indian thinker, Plato was aware of the fact that in some way 
this material world in which we live corresponded not to a normal abode, but to a purgatorial state. In other words, this was a world of ignorance, ruled by ignorance, perpetuated by the ignorance in things. Therefore, if this sphere of material existence as we know it is an illusion sustained by a sequence of delusions operating through karma, then departure from this world was not departure from a factual to a non-factual state, but a departure from a non-factual to a factual state. The difficulty rested in the fact that man, depending entirely upon those aggregates which are called skandhas, have no way of conceiving reality. Therefore, to him, unreality was factual and reality was an illusion. The departure from the state of the individual in a delusional condition to a condition in which delusion does not exist might therefore be likened to waking from a dream. The individual, living in a state of sleep, and accepting beyond question the reality of sleep phenomena is placed in a predicament. Psychologically speaking, suppose that we divided the life of man, day and night, sleeping and waking, into two equal periods, and presume that he had an equal period of dreaming for his period of waking. Let us then, for a moment, assume that his state of dreaming, instead of consisting of a series of unrelated sleep phenomena, that this state of dreaming was itself a continuous unfolding process, so that each person began his next night's dreaming where the previous one left off, and continued this throughout life, so that his dream state had the same sequences and the same consistencies as his waking state. Under such conditions, how could he tell when he was awake and when he was asleep? He is able to distinguish because sleep phenomena is inconsistent in the sense that it is a series of fragments. But these fragments different change, sometimes are present and sometimes are not present. Therefore he accepts a continuous state of waking as reality and rejects an inconsistent, non-continuous state of, of dreaming as unreality. There have been a few examples known in which sleep phenomena was consistent throughout life. Those who have passed through this state have never been able to clearly distinguish their own condition. One example was a man who did dream continuously and consecutively of another life. In his day, he had a comparatively humble position. At night, a more important estate. He followed this dream sequence, dreaming of his growth from childhood to maturity, at the same time that physically he was passing from childhood to maturity. The dream continued throughout life without any eccentricities. While in the dream state, this individual could speak and could answer questions, much as though in a hypnotic state. While in the dream state, he insisted that his dream life was reality and had no awareness of his so-called waking state, except that he occasionally dreamt something strange. And the thing he was dreaming was his objective life. When he was awakened and his objectivity was established, then he was the other person. 
and only admitted that he could dream of another state in which he had a different existence. Our problem, of course, lies, as Buddhist psychology points out, in the fact that we have a polarization or focal point in objectivity. Thus we assume and conceive objectivity to be reality. Now perhaps this is all a tempest in a teapot. Perhaps it really makes no difference whether the waking state or the dream state is reality. Many people will think that. But there is one difference that Buddha very carefully pointed out. And that is that in what we call the waking state of man, life is unsatisfactory. If life here, in this waking state, was conclusive and solutional, if human beings gradually devised a pattern by which they led a satisfactory, integrated existence and could adjust themselves to this world in a manner which did not result in what is termed in Buddhism the great misery. There would be no further problem involved. Buddha was essentially a utilitarian. The abstract phases of his doctrine he was not as much concerned with as he was with the normal daily problem of the human being seeking to find the solution to the infirmities with which he was continuously afflicted. Buddhism therefore took the attitude that these infirmities are due to the substitution of an illusion for a reality. And that man, because of his polarization here, was afraid to leave behind him the very hindrances which were the source of his greatest unhappiness. The condition of reality, then, was not merely an abstraction, not a void, actually, but a void only in the sense that man was unable to comprehend it. To step into it was to step into the unknown. But Buddha pointed out that the unknown is the real, and that therefore the step into the unknown is not into darkness, but out of darkness. And that the person regretfully leaving this sphere for some other is actually leaving behind that which is useless and coming into the presence of that which is useful. Thus, the void, the unknown, the abstraction, the total extinction of personality, which to the Western mind has always seemed dreadful, does not mean that to the Easterner. It simply means that the person is passing into a state of total essential reality and leaving behind him a condition in which that reality is not only unavailable at the moment, but inconceivable. If then there be a religious foundation to the entire concept, it is this sense of faith by which Buddhism inspired its follower uh, to have faith in totality, even though he could not comprehend it. Now, as we also realize that in Buddhism there was a strong revulsion against the Brahmanic theogony or the great Brahmanic concept of deities. And these deities were gradually modified into psychological fixations or mental images. It would be quite obvious that they could not 
kind of God fable or legend as that which would be found among peoples who did believe that the universe was the production of a creating person or a creating being uh, assisted or sustained or manifesting through a great cycle or circle of secondary formative divinities or godlings. If this difference be taken into consideration, then we see why in Buddhism myths, legends, and fables cannot relate primarily to gods. They must all relate to men. They must all relate to the degrees of emancipation through which the human being passes in his path from ignorance to perfection. Also in this concept, in this philosophy, there cannot be any doctrine of original sin, nor can there be a factual agent of evil opposing a factual agent of good. Therefore, the tremendous drama of the conflict of good and evil, as we mentioned it uh, last week in the Sigurd saga, or the Valsun saga, this tremendous battle upon the plain of Ragnarok, in which the forces of good and the forces of evil, represented by gods and demons, locked in one terrible war, the Armageddon of the Nordic lands. This cannot be included or could not have a parallel in Buddhist philosophy. Nor could there be the concept, actually, of avatars in Buddhism or being sent by a supreme being for the purpose of the redemption of mankind. Thus, what we find when we begin to examine the Buddhistic law is a series of legends which pass from a very pure, almost agnostic beginning through a series of enlargements and modifications to become gradually encrusted with accumulations from various nations and people brought to Buddhism as partial converts. We therefore can have and do find in Buddhism elements and fragments from over 40 different religious beliefs. These were imposed upon the pure stream of Buddhist metaphysics. A good example, of course, is your Pan uh, doctrine in Tibet where from the combination of an ancient and indigenous belief with Buddhism came what we call the doctrine of the Lamas. These represent compounds. They do not uh, intensify our understanding of the direct descent of essential Buddhism. Thus we have two general degrees of legendary. These patterns have to do with, of course, rebirth and karma. They have to do with rebirth, as in the case of the Jatakas, which are the life or birth stories of the Buddha, as he is supposed to have related them to his disciples. These stories are concerned with his own previous embodiments, and the processes by means of which the karma in his own satanic compound was gradually dissolved. Thus these fables are highly moralistic inasmuch as they are key to the grand concept of cause producing effect, effect producing cause, and so on until the extinction of cause, not the exhaustion of effect. 
because wherever cause exists, effect is inevitable. The only end of causation, only the end of causation can bring about the end of effect. This is the burden of a broad cycle and circle of legends, which not only indicate the conditions which lead to rebirth, but also point finally to the ultimate residue of karma in the present embodiment. Now Buddha made a statement that we are not too familiar with, but which I think is very relevant. Buddha warned his disciples to accept the doctrine that they were living out in this embodiment previous causations. But he furthermore pointed out that these causations through many lives had become so confused, so involved, so complicated, so inevitably tangled that the human being could not from the mere contemplation of the conditions now existing, arrive at a true apperception of their original causes. He therefore warned the individual not to meditate upon his own karma in the sense of an auto-diagnosis of the reason for his existing infirmities. To accept that there is a reason but to recognize also that his interpretations arising from faculties incapable of conveying reality could not possibly be profitable to him and might lead, as he himself says, to the gravest despair and disconsolation and might even uh, tend toward madness. It was not profitable. But the Jataka tales and many similar stories and the reminiscent legends which arise connected with the lives of various Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Arhats are all essentially key to the belief that all these antecedent causes are necessary to the existing present state of things and that the consciousness which is achieving emancipation is doing so by transcending not only karmic consequences but the inclination of the sensatory system to create further karma. So we have a whole group of legends which have a strange kind of morality under them. Morality which teaches man to pay his debts Morality which reminds him, perhaps, that those whom he now regards as most sanctified and most holy have passed through the same infirmities as himself. That they are not a different substance. Therefore, that anything they have accomplished, he can accomplish. This is an important moral conclusion, for he discovers that even being a sinner, he can become a saint. He becomes a saint by paying his debts and making no more debts of the same kind. The mere paying of debt will not do it. The resolution not to make more debts will not do it. Both have to be present together. He cannot evade the responsibility of action. Therefore, he must be patient. And Buddhism had a tremendously strong ethical point in the fact that because we are good, we cannot immediately wipe away all ill that we have previously done. Good must bring with it patience. The patience to pay the bill with understanding, enlightenment, and charity. And this patience, by meeting the debt and meeting it fairly and squarely, releases 
removes the individual from the further consequences of previous conduct. But he may still remain a conduct-causing creature. And to prevent the continuation of conduct, he must transcend action on the objective or illusionary sphere. Thus, the suspension of action is the only solution uh, to liberation from the consequences of action. There is no other way. Now, this will cause a considerable amount of uh, misunderstanding among Western people. Uh, we become, become of a mind that Buddha is teaching doing nothing, or a do-nothingness. Yet, as the old uh, saints themselves pointed out, the suspension of action is quite a little job in itself. It takes more work than all the activity that we now perform. For the suspension of action cannot arise merely from volitional control by the will. The suspension of action is a byproduct of the exhaustion of ignorance. While ignorance remains, action cannot be suspended. So the individual who believes that the suspension of action is the end of his usefulness is taking the attitude that he is useful only to the degree that he is ignorant. He doesn't think of it that way, but if he follows the thinking through, he finds that logic will bring some rather strange conclusions. So in our legends and fables, we are informed furthermore of the importance of the suspension of action, and various examples are given to exemplify the means by which, by which such things are done and the ends to be attained thereby. Buddhism also carries with it another totally uh, separate line of symbolism, in this case also legendary and lore. Because from legend, lore and fable can also be created a series of mandalas which may either be in picture or in form or in term. Therefore, an example of the conduct of an arhat or a sanctified being may become a meditation focus which causes the disciple to attempt to understand the meaning of an obscure statement or a curious and involved incident or a pretty fable drawn in a strange daring stroke like some of the nihilistic and apparently, apparently utterly cryptic formulas of Zen which seem to be almost incomprehensible themselves. Buddhism recognizing that its primary end was to convey the incomprehensible realized that there was no direct method of achieving this. No direct wording. No preachment that could do it. So we take one of the legends which relates to the occasion in which Buddha was preaching at the Vulture's Peak. And it was at that time that he was resolved to communicate 
then remains, the Buddha then remains simply looking quietly at the blue lotus that he was holding in his lap. He remained for a long time and said nothing. At the end of a certain period, one of his disciples became radiant. He likewise said nothing, but his face was illumined with a tremendous light. And the Buddha turned to him and said, You have received the doctrine. No word was spoken. Now this is a fable, a legend, perhaps the basis of a transmission. We are not sure. But in all legends, we do not know what is factual and what is allegorical. But this is a typical type of Buddhist legend. It is a legend which has none of the objective drama of the great Nordic or the Egyptian cycles or the Greek mythology. It is a legend, however, which calls tremendously upon the person who hears it or the person who reads it. For he begins to attempt through this to conceive the inconceivable. He tries to understand what Buddha conveyed and how, and why this conveyance could not be in words. And if there were no words, how the disciple received it. I told this to one man one day, and he said it's very evident, thought transference. <laughs> A typical Western out. <laughs> no, because if it could be uh, conveyed in thought, it could be conveyed in words. After all, thoughts can be embodied, either in phrases, or in pictures, or in terms of some kind. Perhaps the embodiment may not be perfect, but a conveyance of that which can be formed into intellectual image is possible. What the Buddha can, uh, bestowed could not be thought, nor could the transmission of it be thought, because that which he conveyed partook to some measure of reality, and reality is beyond thought. The only thing that thought can do about reality is postulate it. It can affirm it, but it can never define it. Therefore, that which was transmitted was transmitted upon a different level. And it is said that after this transmission, uh, the doctrine was temporarily lost but a very interesting thing happened. While the great teacher was at the vulture's peak and was thus engaged in the quiet transmission of the law, there were beings present who could not be seen. And these beings were the serpent spirits who had already uh, proved that they received or had participated in the doctrine because one of the inevitable signs of the embodiment of the Great One is that the serpent spirits shall cast flowers upon this being and shall strew its path with flowers. And these beings had done so, thereby indicating that they had recognized the embodiment. But these beings, these serpent spirits, also received the transmission at the same time the disciple did. But they were invisible. But it was preserved by them in an iron tower, in a mysterious world. And it was later there discovered by the great Buddhist saint, Nagarjuna, who gave it to the world. Here is a legend. But you see, it's an entirely different type of legend from Odin wandering around the earth with one eye, or the Cyclops attacking the ship of Ulysses. Actually, the meanings might 
legends then take upon themselves the second peculiar phase or quality. They become, as in the case of the life of Jesus, which is perhaps the nearest thing to a Buddhist legend that we have in the Western world. Because in this legend we have, essentially, as it is presented in the Gospels, the simple story of a good man teaching through example. Now this would come very, very close to the substance of Buddhism. For your Buddhist fable, involving the lives of sanctified beings, consists almost exclusively of teaching through example, of presenting the doctrine in an infinite diversity of ways. There is no answer in Buddhism to the great mysteries of how something came out of nothing. There is no essential cosmogony as we know it. There is nothing of creation because Buddhism does not assume creation to be real. Thus there is not a vast architectural device from which things come or to which things conform. There is a river, an ever-flowing stream of eternal becoming. This, of course, is not its real name, but it is the nearest name which he could devise. Therefore, it is not a statement of reality, but a minimum statement of illusion. It is the least illusionary statement conceivable. If, then, we go into the psychology of Buddhism, particularly the Mahayana school, we have what at first appears to be a theogenic element. For we learn that at the root of things is a supposedly supreme being. And that this supreme being, in a state of eternal meditation, causes illusion as an experience within itself, and by will and yoga projects phenomena. This, however, again, is a fable, a legend. For by the Supreme Being is meant the same thing, nirvana, or the being state becoming. And in Buddhism, there are no deities except those which are conjured into existence by some kind of conditioned intelligence. The deities do not make men. Men make the deities. Now, that would cause someone to say, perhaps, that Buddhism is attacking our entire concept of life. And therefore, that Buddhism is denying the gods, or denying the existence of gods. It does no such thing. It simply declares that they are conjured into being by intelligence. They do not deny that this intelligence can create vast thought forms, which may or might almost be likened uh, to archetypal patterns within the psychic life of the human being. Nor does Buddhism deny that the psychic patterns of individuals become aggregates or unite to form what might be termed collective archetypes. And that deity as we know it is the collective archetype or projection of mind upon space. Now this does not mean that one mind created in the sense of one human mind. But they are mind born. And we are inclined to assume that they are born from the mind of God. But Buddhism says no. 
out of this embodiment, uh, we will not come back. Now that is a decision that a number of persons have made. The weight of the decision is a little doubtful, but at least it is enthusiastic. Now we have a whole group of fables to help us out, right, at this particular point. So, when we say we will go elsewhere, or we will not come back, we are affirming our existence in some other state. So our friend will naturally and quite reasonably ask us where we are going and what we think this state is going to be. Now perhaps we will admit ignorance. We don't know. This is the, the most simple statement. This is a primary statement merely of the fact that we are convinced of survival. Beyond that, we are not certain. But if we belong to almost any belief or philosophy, life or religion, we have some kind of a concept as to where we are going. So perhaps if we have had a very difficult life, and a very confused one, we will say, well, there's one thing I know. I'm going where there's no more trouble. So we begin to describe what to us is heaven. Last week we spoke about the Nordic concept of Asgard, or the wonderful banquet hall of Valhalla. Here, the warriors who were picked up by the Valkyrie from the field of battle were carried to the great banquet hall that was made with walls of spears and roofs of shields. And in this banquet hall, people ate all night and fought all day. And it was a perfectly delightful uh, prospect. We feel that we have totally outgrown any such night decay as that. So we say, well, we're going where it is wonderful and beautiful. And if we are pressed further, we may go to say, well, there'll be no winter there. There'll be no sorrow there. There will be no care. Perhaps we will even go with the Egyptian and declare that we will have our own little 40 acres, which we will plow. And we will have our own house, but there will be no bankers, no loans, landlords, and no mortgages. So by degrees, we fashion some kind of an image of what we think a really satisfactory heaven would be like. Of course, we always hope we'll make it, uh, but as we analyze our own conduct and read the credo, we wonder whether we will make it or not. We may be inspired with the fact that we're not quite good enough to be certain of this desirable and electable future. But what have we actually done? We have merely fashioned another sphere just like our own. The only thing we have done, we have molded it closer to our heart's desire, as Omar says. This heaven is just here, minus the difficulties. <laughs> it is attenuated, yes. We may be able to walk through walls. We may not need to bother opening doors. Of course, we are no longer much interested in hearts and wings. They are a little bit too dark. But still, what do we actually have as a conception? We have terms such as, there will be no parting there. We have ideas, but they are mostly relief 